There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Bebe Rayborn. Bebe is a senior at Mississippi State University, where she has a double major in communications with a public relations emphasis and philosophy with a religion emphasis. She's also a model who's been signed with the Industry NY, the Industry LA, and Milk Model Management all since 2021. Her role as a model has also afforded Bebe an opportunity to travel in the U.S. and abroad. Her interest in advocacy on behalf of victims and survivors of sex and human trafficking led to a volunteer role with the Mississippi Human Trafficking Council and her involvement in No Longer Bound, a group that works on college campuses to raise awareness of human trafficking. Baby Rayborn, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for your time. I know you've got a busy academic schedule, so we appreciate okay. you uh, fitting in between quizzes and exams and, and study sessions. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Of course. So I'd originally planned on starting our conversation with a question about your unique name, but instead, I have to start with a new story from last month about your unbelievable summer. You appeared in the blockbuster movie, Barbie. How in the world did that come about? Wow. So summer before last, I was on a work visa in England as I'm signed with Milk Model Management there. And throughout the summer, I'd been given different jobs and opportunities and Working for Barbie was one of the last jobs I'd actually done that summer. You know, how it works with modeling is your agent sends you an email and they send you, you know, the company, a time, um, the rate, and they're like, are you available for this? Is this something you'd be interested in? So towards the end of my time and stay there, I get an email and it's like Barbie extra and it's like date, time, rate. And at that point, it's a year before anyone even knew what Barbie was. So I was like, is this a kid's movie? Is this an adult movie? I don't really know. Um, But I was like, eight-year-old me was super pumped. So I was like, this is great. I'll take this. So I ended up going and it was just honestly surreal. I've never done anything besides like print or runway. So something like in the film industry was like everything ran somewhat different, but it was so fun, so crazy. And then everything comes out about a year later, you know, I haven't necessarily forgotten about it, but I'll go straight back to school and do all the things. So then when it finally comes out and like Margot Robbie's in it and then everyone's freaking out, it was just like, yeah, I was there, you know, so. Did you or anybody on the set think it would be the the major blockbuster that it was? I think after we knew that Margot Robbie was starring in it, we were all like, this is going to take off for sure, with without a doubt. Um, we were just, it just was surreal. And they did a great job with the the, the marketing and advertising because they just showed, the one commercial they had was just showing Margot Robbie walking out there, but you had no idea the mm-hmm. concept or the thought behind it. And I will say that uh, my 11-year-old son went with my wife and two of his buddies to see it. And so, I mean, it, it is a huge, huge success. So congratulations to being part of that. And to go a little bit further, what was your experience like on the movie set? Did you get to meet the stars? How they treat you as an extra? Right. So part of it was filmed in LA and the other part was filmed in the UK. So Margot was in LA and I was in the UK. So I did not get to meet her, um, but I did get to meet the director, which was absolutely fantastic um and just being on set there was about 50 of us or so that were extras 
And we all formed these like close bond community in a way, just like bonding over the experience. We all still keep up with each other. I remember the movie came out and all the different extras were like posting from their scene and everything. It was just like, it felt like I got to be a part of another community and on set was just so crazy. There's so many moving parts that you assume maybe, but seeing it all in person and just having 50 girls there, plus like the set and the crew, it just, wow, it was a lot to take in. So tell us about your scene or your scenes and how would we be able to find you in the movie? Yes. So the opening of the movie, like the first three minutes, I'm in one of the scenes where it's like doing this panoramic view of like all the different like diverse Barbie dolls. And so I'm in like this 70s orange top and we're just standing there smiling. So that is my scene. When I was there on set, we filmed for 12 hours, about four to five different scenes. And, you know, they cut and edit and select. So I'm in one of the opening three minute scenes. You have to talk about your very unusual hair extensions. Yes. So of course, with Barbie, you know, costumes have got to be top notch. So the week before we even film, there's like a costume dress rehearsal where they bring all the girls in and they have like racks and racks of literally Barbie doll looking clothes. And their hair has to be extreme because that's Barbie, right? So they sew in these very long extensions into my hair down to my literal waist. And they were so heavy. It felt like I had 20 pounds of hair on my head. So by the end of the 12-hour day, I had a little bit of a headache, but it was worth it. And have all your friends and family been to the movies to see you? And what's the reaction been like on campus in your hometown? Oh, my goodness. I did not expect everyone to respond in the way they did. Everyone's just been so, like, happy and encouraging. And I feel like every day, whether I'm walking to campus or I stop somewhere to eat and like Starkville, Mississippi, people are like, you were the girl who was in Barbie. And I just never thought that'd be something someone would say to me. So it's, I've had tremendous support. You know, I've had all my friends go to the movies and they'll send me a picture of like when they see me and just a lot of encouragement, which has just blown my mind. It's been great. And has that experience led you to want to be in other movies or TV shows? I don't know. I never grew up thinking like, oh, maybe I want to be an actor, an actress one day. And I don't know if that's something definitely, unless it all just happened to fall in my lap in some way. I don't know if that's something I'd pursue. Okay. Now let's talk about your first name. Is Bebe your legal middle name? And if so, what's the story behind your parents choosing it? Yes. So Bebe is actually my legal first name. So on my birth certificate, my name is Bebe Alexis Grace Rayborn. And so originally my parents were going to name me Alexis Grace, call me Lexi. And my mom just said she was praying about what to name me. And Bebe just kept popping in her mind. And so she talked to my dad about it. And they were like, you know, we'll name her Alexis Grace and just call her Bebe. And then my dad, you know, being the very fun man he is, he's like, let's just go ahead and put on her birth certificate as her first name, you know. And I think my mom was quite hesitant about it. But I'm pretty sure my dad's the one who filled out the birth certificate. So he put Bebe as my legal first name and Alexis Grace is my middle name. So Bebe is my legal first name. Is there a special meaning or, or significance to the name? Well, my mom's side of the family is French and Hebrew. So Bebe is French for baby. So to her, I really am like her truly special baby because my mom had me when she was 44. I was her only child. You know, she didn't think she was ever going to have children. So when she finally had me, she just said she felt like it was such a blessing. So it's very endearing to me. Have you ever met someone else who spells and pronounces their name the same way? I have never met anyone named Bebe as their legal first name. I've met a couple Baileys who said growing up their families would like call them Bebe, but no one whose first name was Bebe. What do you appreciate most about having a unique name 
and how has it shaped your perspective or individuality? Wow. It's been an interesting ride. You know, growing up, you want to be like everyone else, especially when you're younger, you know. And so having the name Bebe, of course, in middle school, like boys will pick on it or teachers pronounce it wrong. And honestly, there's so much identity in a name in the sense of like, it's a label for you in a sense that you create the name. And now that I've just grown up with the name Bebe and no one else's name Bebe, I think it really does help me to just identify with who I am solely not being like oh well I would know like someone so named this or someone so named that and it seems like such a small thing you know names but when you think about it, that's the one thing you have and you carry throughout your entire life you know like that is no matter what happens in life like your name is your name and I've just been so grateful to have something that a is a great conversation starter b helps me connect with people because it's a great icebreaker you know it's like hey nice to meet you I'm baby and people are like you're what or they'll laugh and be like, okay, sure. Or people will be like, that's not your real name. So automatically, I feel like it just allows me to connect with people off the bat. And what advice would you give others who may have unusual names and want to feel confident about them? Oh my goodness. You just have to fully embrace it. Like you can't be, when things that you can somewhat maybe possibly feel insecure about, those are the things you just have to fully embrace. You know, when you take something and you make it yours and you're confident about it, no one's going to say anything about it. You know, if you have a name and you're timid and people are like, what's your name? And you're like, oh, I'm so-and-so. And no, just always be so proud of like your name and where you're from. And that's also like earning respect from people when you respect yourself and who you are. All right. I'm sure I've given you enough questions about your name. Let's move on and talk about the modeling profession in general and your modeling career. Yes. Obviously, you were young when you got started in the modeling industry. What inspired you to become a model? Honestly, growing up, I was tall and lanky. I had a size nine foot by the time I was in the sixth grade. And so adults would always be like, oh, you should be a model. And so me with my braces and like, you know, curly hair. And I just was like, they're crazy, you know. Um, and there was a local agency, though, called JEA in Jackson, Mississippi. And I was like, you know, like, I think I was first interested in it as the artsy aspect in it. I grew up with Barbie dolls, I would go to the like fabric store and get fabric for them and like dress them up and make little clothes for them. So in my mind, I was like, this would be like a fun creative outlet. And it ended up being maybe slightly less creative in the sense that you don't get control over like the creative realm of necessarily like the shoot and what's going on. But still being a part of it was something that really made me interested in becoming a model. And are there any fashion designers, photographers, or fellow models whose work you admire or has inspired you? Oh my goodness. Yes. So many. Um, wow. Even just girls I've met through modeling. I have a friend um, who's a great model. Her name's Sarah Hemi and she is from Japan. And a lot of her work that she does is just so effortlessly beautiful. And it's not just from the fact that she has like a great face, but her personality shines well through every photo she takes. She's the most positive, kind-hearted person. And you can just tell that countenance through her pictures. You graduated from high school at age 17, signed with a modeling agency the following spring, and then went off to New York on your own. Mm -hmm. You live with two other young models in an apartment provided by the agency. How's an arrangement like that work? And did your relationship with the two com complete strangers help you settle into your modeling or was it a competitive situation? Oh my goodness. It was like showing up in New York and not even knowing the place you're going to live at until you knock on the front door 
was kind of one of those moments where in life where you're like, how did I get here? Like, what what am I doing? Um, and so I remember specifically going up to the mall apartment, you know, it's in the Chelsea area in Manhattan, New York. And I remember knocking on the door and this really chill girl opens the door and she's like, hey, I'm Janice. This is like, are you are you one of the models? And I was like, 17 year old me was like, uh-huh. <laughs> I like, yes. And she's like, okay, you can come in. So I come in, settle my stuff. And she's off the bat like, yeah, stuff like this can be awkward, but we're just going to chill. And I was like, perfect. And so the two girls, it was very not competitive because the three of us had very different looks. You know, one of them's name was Ajak. She was from South Sudan, grew up in a refugee camp, this tall, beautiful, very, very dark complected girl, short hair. Janice was from Mexico and she had like shorter, shoulder length, curly hair, like very spunky. And there's me, this girl from Mississippi with my long, you know, brown hair and None of us, if anyone were to get a job, the other ones were not meant because that like company was looking for a specific look. And because our looks were so different, it never felt like a competition for work. Because if someone was going to choose one of us, they weren't going to choose the other ones for that specific look. And they just like, wow, getting to live with them and see here like where they came from, like what their home countries were like, what their customs were, and as well as like just bonding and being friends and like being so different and having almost nothing in common, but being able to come together and then like laugh and talk about work for the day. That just really made me think like, okay, maybe this isn't such a scary thing after all. You know, moving to New York City is daunting for anybody. Uh, you know, I moved there when I was 25 and luckily had some friends from home and from college there. And so that helped me with the transition. But you were 17 years old. What was going through your mind, you, you personally, and also your parents moving away from Mississippi at 17. Yeah, my parents were freaked out without a doubt. You know, I had Life360 on my phone so they could make sure nothing bad happened to me, which if something did bad happen to me, I don't know how fast they'd be able to get there. Um, but they were definitely somewhat concerned. I don't really, looking back, know why they let me do that. But I think it was like a God thing for sure because my mom, very big into prayer. And she said, you know, she had peace about it. She was just going to keep praying for my safety. And me showing up for the first time, I was like, this is great. I love this. You know, I love, I'm, um, I grew up somewhat hyper independent. So running around by myself and traveling by myself was never something I was like, man, like, I'm so scared. I don't want to do this. It was just like, okay, I'm ready. You mentioned your roommates were from two very different backgrounds. Yes. What did you learn from them? So much. I think it expanded my worldview a lot. You know, when you grow up somewhere that the vast majority of people around you grew up with similar experiences, you hear about things on the news and you hear about things going on in the world, but it's not materialized to you, you know, like it's not tangible. And then you get to talk to people from those places. And it's like, wow, the world is bigger than my little corner of the earth, you know, and it made me not necessarily look at them as more humane because I see like saw them that way, but as more like, wow, these are real things that oftentimes people hear about things on the news and you just avoid it because you're like, oh, that's far off somewhere. But once you meet people from those places, it's like, it's not so far off anymore. What are some of the challenges you face as a young model in a new and unfamiliar environment and how did you overcome them? Traveling alone was hard at first in the sense of getting from point A to point B. Um, in New York, you know, there's a subway. People often think I had an agent just like holding my hand, telling me where to go. And how it works is I would get emails with a Google Maps location and they'd be like, okay, get there by this time. I had to figure out the subway. I had to learn like the right people you could ask for help. Because obviously in New York, you can't just like walk up to every stranger and be like, hey, like, can you help me? Because no, they're not. 
And I just learned that like, no matter there'd be moments where I grew up with a little bit of anxiety, I would like freeze and shut down. I had to learn how to work through those moments to get myself from maybe one place to another or to work through an uncomfortable situation with like someone on the street saying something inappropriate or people approaching you and like not really leaving you alone. It's like how to work through that mental block of like, I just want to like shut down and crawl back right now to like, know how do I deal with the situation and not just run away. And what have you found most rewarding and most difficult so far about modeling? And what assignment would your would be your dream come true assignment? Wow. Um, most rewarding would just be the fact I, at such a young age, have been able to meet such a diverse group of people. I don't think that's a very common thing for a lot of people if you didn't grow up traveling. Um, I feel honored that I've been able to have that experience because I'm just now 20 and I've been to several different countries and met people from almost every continent. And that's just fantastic to me. What's hard, honestly, being a girl is already hard in the sense of like, do I look okay? Am I the right size? And then being a model and also even in college and you, you're surrounded by people all the time, I have to remind myself, like, it's not a competition. Like, yes, this is a very secular thing and it is based on a lot of aesthetics, but like you are not just the body you're in. You're more than that. And that's a hard thing to remember when it's constantly about the body you're in. And so just having to work through those hard moments um, has been a learning curve for sure. And then what was the last question? What's your, what would be your dream assignment? Right. So, wow. I love the very, my, my style would be very classy. And when I think of classy, I think of like Dior, Chanel. And so honestly, like a perfume ad for them, when you see like on the TV, they're like running through the field of flowers and a dress for like this, like very like feminine fragrance. That would be my dream. Well, we'll make sure that they hear this from you. So we'll, we'll see what we can do for that. <laughs> How do you maintain a positive yet realistic attitude in a very demanding and sometimes cruel industry? And what do you do to maintain a healthy balance between modeling, college, anti-trafficking efforts, family, and the rest of life? I remember the one thing that Janice and my roommates told me when, because there were some hard moments in New York, um, she would remind me, even when it feels personal and they say things that are personal, it's not personal. Um I think so much of it is centered around like you as a person that I have to remind myself that like it's not about me, you know, because when you take everything personal and you're the center of your own world, everything's going to hit a lot harder and you're going to get wrapped up in things you don't need to be wrapped up in. And the positive attitude, honestly, one thing I've prayed a lot recently is like, Lord, help me to love others better, like every day. And when you're so focused on like, how can I genuinely care for other people, whether it's my roommates or people I encounter at work, it's like, wow, seeing them as like, helps it not to be like, oh, my life is so hard and this is going wrong and everything, you know, like, cause it's not about you at that point. Lord help me to love others better. Mm -hmm. We need more people to, to think and, and to act like that. Mm -hmm. Do you have to stay up to date with the latest fashion trends and industry developments or is that something that takes care of itself? I definitely have learned boundaries when it comes to staying up to date with everything because especially being here at college when I'm going back and forth between modeling if I get so wrapped up in like every new thing that's going on I'll start to be like oh well maybe I shouldn't be in college right now maybe I should be out in New York instead of like earning my degree or maybe that could have been like me or someone I know or I'd have more connections and so while yes I like to keep up with like specific trends and big things going on I have to learn to like compartmentalize my life. And what advice would you give to someone who's aspiring to become a model, especially someone who's your age and looking at it in the business? 
Wow. I would say before anything, before you want to become a model, do a self-reflection. See, A, if you're in a place mentally that if you were given the position opportunity, like how you would handle it, if it would change you as a person, you know, why you want it. Because if you want to do something to be liked or you're willing to get any job, you're going to probably cross a lot of personal boundaries without even realizing you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be like, hey, who am I and how did I get here? So definitely start with some self-reflection. And then if you really want to take the next right step, find a local mother agency. You know, mother agencies, their job as a smaller agency is they have connections to bigger agencies. So they get you signed that way. It's not like you're conquering a mountain, you know, you're starting where you're planted. Are there any dangers that younger aspiring models need to be aware of? Oh, so many, so, so many. Um, naiveness, being naive, um, that will get a lot of people in a lot of situations. You know, yes, have a positive outlook, but also see people for who they are. People will offer you things. They'll want to spend time with you. They'll want to get things out of you with promises of returning that. Okay. And you just really have to protect yourself because yes, everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. That doesn't mean they deserve your time. Um, and so especially with young girls, there's a lot of older men in the agent in the in the modeling world. And I don't just mean like, you know, people think of like older creepy guys. I mean like older guys as in like 30, 35, who will be like, I can get you this connection and this thing, just come out to like dinner and drinks with me tonight and like you know, build those relationships. And it all makes, you know, in every lie, there's a little bit of truth, you know, that's how they fudge it. But you just have to look out for yourself and realize people are probably more selfish than they're making it seem. I'm afraid to tell you how old I am if you're calling older guys 30 or 35 years old. So I'm no, going to overlook than that statement. <laughs> Can you share some insights into the behind the scenes aspects of modeling that people in their audience may not be aware of? Yeah, people are often like, man, your job's so fun. And every time I finish a job, I feel like I've just hit a wall and I need to stare at a wall for like 10 more hours. So it's very interesting when you come into a job, especially a lot of times you're the only like talent or model there. And there's a really big set. There's a lot going on. And working for 12 hours at a time where you have to be hyper-focused, like you are the main subject as in like a lot of what comes out of it is reliant on you, you know, and then you're often with people you've never met before. Doing a new job every time is very, it can be mentally draining for sure, especially if you're an introvert. Um, people are always tugging on you, moving you, telling you what you're doing wrong. And it doesn't necessarily feel like you're being dehumanized, but you feel like a mannequin, you know, and at the end of the day, like you just want to hug from someone you know. Um, and it's long hours and those long hours tend to get lonely because when you're working alone and you're in environments where you don't have connections with people, it can just start to feel like you're there, you know, and it doesn't necessarily feel rewarding in that moment. It just feels like you're another figure. Um, and so, and every job is different. Also, you have to be very adaptable. Some people want a specific look and a certain, you know, expression or movement. And it's like constantly learning and relearning to please the people that you're employed by, you know, you don't want to disappoint them, but you also are trying to learn on the fly. So it can be challenging for sure. And are there any misconceptions about the modeling profession that come to mind that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, I think everyone also thinks that when you do a modeling job, they like do you up in a way that you like and you look like very like pretty girl with like nice hair and makeup. And a lot of jobs I've done, I look scary, you know, because it's like a lot of it is art. And I think people think that it's just like more of like a pageant side, which like pageants are great, but that's not what it is. And you have to be comfortable not looking maybe like in your mind, the best version of you and still doing the job in a confident manner that gets the job done.
What is your perspective of the importance of body positivity and self-confidence in the modeling world? Wow. So this is a very big topic right now because agencies as well as companies are trying to branch out from the stereotypical like double zero, you know, heroin skinny, sleek look. Um, And some girls can like maintain that body naturally just through their genetics. Um, I've learned that my healthiest when I have energy you know, toned muscle mass, and I'm eating enough like that, to me is body positivity is when you're taking care of yourself to the best of your advantage. That's the best way to go about it. So eat right, sleep and exercise. Yes, drink plenty of water too. I've learned that water is actually essential to, you know, be healthy and living. So and what are your long term career goals in modeling? And where do you see yourself in the future? Wow. I don't know. It's been such a day by day adventure. And a lot of it, I do feel like the Lord has just, it's his will. Um, one thing I say a lot lately is daily bread, you know, whatever the Lord supplies for that day where he leads me, that's where I'll go. I would love to say I would dream in the next, you know, year or so to maybe after I get my master's or before that, if I could like travel some more, do some more work, that would be great. That'd be fun. Um, but really right now, just daily bread. We've been talking to Bebe Rayborn and we'll be right back after a short break. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Baby Rayborn. Baby is a senior at Mississippi State University, where she has a double major in communications with a public relations emphasis and philosophy with a, with a religion emphasis. She's a model who has signed the Industry New York, NY, excuse me, the Industry LA, and Milk Model Management. And her interest in advocacy on behalf of victims and survivors of sex and human trafficking led to a volunteer role with the Mississippi Human Trafficking Council and her involvement in No Longer Bound a group that works on college campuses to raise awareness of human trafficking. Baby, we've been talking about your modeling career, but you're a senior in your senior year, excuse me, at Mississippi State University right now. Mm-hmm. You were planning on staying in New York and modeling, but someone else had another idea. What was their advice and why ultimately did you listen to it? So I was in New York after my senior high school. And at one point I was like, I'm just going to stay here. You know, I'm not going back to Mississippi there's not a specific passion I have regarding education that, you know, would really light me on fire to go back to the school. 
my mom, my sweet mom, went to school at Mississippi State. And she is a powerhouse woman in the fact that she is strong in her faith and she believes what she believes. And I think she very much values the importance of education and community. And she was worried, you know, if I stayed in New York as well, I'd be very hard for me to find a good group of community um, that has like high values, especially in the industry I'm in. And she told me I better get my tail back to Mississippi and go to Mississippi State. So I packed my bags. You know, I prayed about it. I felt peace about coming back. It was a hard you know, transition to come back when I kind of like had set my sights to stay there for a little bit longer. But overall, my mom was definitely the reason I came to Mississippi State. I'm guessing she didn't politely ask. No. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) As moms do. Why did you pick communications with the emphasis on public relations and philosophy with religion emphasis as your double major? So communications by When I applied to state, I was looking through the credentials of different majors, um, and I'm really bad at chemistry. And I noticed off the bat, A, communications didn't require me to take chemistry, which was great. Um, And B, I, you know, love people and talking to people, but communications isn't just, you know, loving people and talking to people. It's learning the art and skill of writing, the inner workings of company, um, the psychology behind, like, how different businesses and corporations work together. Like there's a lot of different moving parts and communication to me is kind of the overarching thing you need for everything to run smoothly. Um, And so with philosophy and religion, I didn't add that until my sophomore year. You know, I love my classes. Um, I love, you know, learning the technical aspects of writing. But then I had this professor named Dr. Bisson for my systematic theology class, which I was supposed to be an anthropology class. But then I just it really was not my thing. So I dropped it and changed into systematic theology, which two completely different classes. And he has just been this amazing professor. You know, he taught biology in the UK for a while. And then he wanted to go to seminary and become, you know, a preacher or pastor. And he looked at Wales and New England and Canada and then Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, went to RTS and then, you know, had plans just to go back to England and Europe and ended up staying in Columbus, Mississippi, where he pastors a church. And then he was offered like a position through someone at like his church for an opening in the religion department. So learning in his class has just been a humbling experience because he's so wise, be so humble. And I feel like it's really hard to find people who are very knowledgeable on a topic that still, you know, have a sense of just genuine down to earth, still so willing to learn. Because oftentimes the more we know, the more we think we actually know. So it's just been an honor to be in his class. I mentioned earlier that you're in your senior year at Mississippi State, but I want to correct that and say you're into your final year of undergrad studies because you're graduating early. Right. And I understand you've gone from not wanting to go to college at all in the bright lights, big city in Manhattan Mm -hmm. to thinking about pursuing a master's degree. Will you be balancing more academic work with your modeling career and travels after graduation in May? So right now I am this in this great in-between place where I didn't realize until the towards the end of summer that I was actually had the classification of like senior final year. I thought I was going to my junior year of college, um, but I had taken 26 dual enrolled hours before I even came to college in high school. I dual enrolled in community college. And then I took two summer classes on top of my internship, just not necessarily for fun, but I was like, you know, I'm just working like eight to five and then I, I have time to come home and like do schoolwork. So I might as well just go ahead and take some more classes. So I did. Um, and 
when I came to school this semester, it still hasn't sunk in that like I'm nearing the end of undergrad, whereas usually I would have like, you know, two years left. Um, And so I'm in this in-between where I know I want to get my master's. Um, I'm still looking at all the details of what that entails, meeting with advisors regularly, but also thinking about maybe traveling back to the UK, whether it's this summer or maybe I want to go ahead and get my master's and then go back to the UK or we'll see day by day. So I think Webster's Dictionary needs to upgrade their uh, image next to Overachiever and put you in there. <laughs> Thank Go you. from eight to five, take some extra classes, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So you mentioned earlier the influence that your mother has and on your influence on your degree. Have you had any professors who have really influenced your thinking or the pers- your perspective on the value of education? Wow. Yes. I would have to say the philosophy professor, Dr. Bisson. And a big reason for that would be Oftentimes, people as professors just treat it as their job. You know, you get in the class, you get out, they gave you the slides. It's, you know, your position to figure it out. And with him, he literally allots time after all of his classes. If anyone wants to come asking questions about, you know, what we're learning, the subject as a whole, life, like how different things apply to different philosophical or religious things. He's, he was telling me how in the UK, the way that school was run when he was a professor was basically that like they were more close with their students in the sense that they would stay after and talk. And in the U S it isn't quite like that, but he's still open to even like, he's like, if anyone wants to ever get like coffee, bring a friend like on campus and sit and discuss like class even more in depth. He's like, I'm more than willing to give that time away. And that means a lot to me because not many people are willing to do that. You know, if they're not on the clock getting paid, they don't care to contribute any more than they have to. And so for him to know so much and be so willing to give away that information, it just, it made me love learning. You have any other role models, either in or out of modeling or education? And what is it about them that inspires and motivates you? Yeah, so there's this wonderful woman named Lisa Hathaway. And I met her because I'm also writing a book right now. Um, And it's a group of 20 college girls coming together. They're all writing their own chapter. And it is a Christian-based book on loneliness and how to deal with loneliness in college. And it's going to be all of our different accounts on just how we've dealt with that, how we've seen the Lord through that, just stepping through that. And Lisa is one of the head leaders helping us write the book and give out information. And she's She's also, she's a counselor in North Carolina. And it's just so funny because over the summer I went to work for American Eagle and my flight got delayed in North Carolina. I've never met this woman before. And she offers, comes and picks me up from the airport, like 50 minutes from where she lives, lets me stay at her house with her family. She's working, you know, to get, be able to become a counselor. She has a son who has autism. And she's also started like this really cool drum line at the school for the children who are special needs. She's just so willing every day to give everything, like, no matter if it's an inconvenience. Like, she's one of those people that if you need something, you don't feel like you're interrupting her. You know, oftentimes we feel like we're being interrupted when someone needs something from us. And she's just so willing to give anything advice. She texts me every other day, tells me she's praying for me. Like, I've just never met a woman like that before. So let me take it back a step. You're going to school, finishing a year early in school, modeling career, volunteer work. And you're writing a book. Yes. <laughs> I definitely have to call Webster's Dictionary and get that uh, definition <laughs> changed. So we were talking a few months ago about who, how you were motivated to become involved in anti-trafficking. You told me that you dream almost every night, if not every night, and often have vivid dreams. Mm-hmm. I think you said it was an in-depth, crazy dream about human trafficking that moved you. Would you take some time to describe that, please? 
Yes. So my freshman year coming into college, you know, I was a communications major and I was still figuring out like my faith and what I believed. And finally, I just broke towards the end of it. And I was like, Lord, my life is yours. Like whatever you want me to do, yours. I don't, you know, I don't want the control. I don't want the plan. Your will be done. And I remember asking like, what do you want me to do with my major? I'm a communications major. I don't know what that entails. Um, And I remember going to a conference um, for it was a passion conference and the night before the first sermon or whatever had even started I had this dream that I was this little girl who was being human trafficked through the mountains and it was like very very tangible and real most of my dreams are like very wild um, not really realistic though but this felt very real and it was like I could feel the fear and the dream and the emotions of what it was like and I remember waking up the next morning and being like what was that? You know, I didn't read anything the night before that had to do with trafficking. I didn't watch any movies or shows, you know, I would have been like true crime stuff or like horror movies. So it's so out of left field. And that night, um, one of the pastors was giving a sermon and, you know, this conference had nothing to do with trafficking. It was about college students, you know, learning to live for Christ. And so he went in this in-depth explanation of this little girl being trafficked through the mountains, you know, how she used to be at home with her mom, very poor family. It was a mom and like several children. And the little girl was very beautiful, very young, would work outside every day, helping her household. And this guy came by several times and asked her mom, you know, could this little girl come with me down to the city um, and we'll put her to like actual work and we'll send the money back to you, everything she earns, and you'll get to see her like once a month. And the mom was really uneasy about it. And she was like, no, you know, I appreciate the offer, but no. And so then, you know, they continue to struggle even more. And he comes back by again and asks again. And the mother gives in and lets him take the little girl. Um, And the little girl is taken and trafficked. And of course, the family never receives money and they never see the little girl again. And my heart, it was like, I'm not an overly emotional person. And I just remember breaking down and being like, Lord, if this is what, you know, you want my life's mission to be, whether it is like working for a nonprofit or working for like MBI or FBI, like, Lord, like I'm yours. And the one thing I remember praying specifically was like, I don't know the next right step though. You know, like you're just going to have to lead and guide me and almost put in my path the next right thing to do, because I don't even know how to get into any of this. And as a model from Mississippi, you know, I am a Christian. My faith is something that's very important to me. And Mississippi Christian Living had reached out to me about writing an article about what it was like to have faith and travel. And the last question they asked in the magazine basically was, what do you want to do with your life? And I had mentioned human trafficking was something I felt very passionate about. And I felt like that wanted to be like the overarching mission of my life, you know, outside of the gospel. And Jan Schaefer from the Mississippi Human Trafficking Council read that article somehow her son's girlfriend like gone to high school with me so she got my phone number and called me and I remember I was in Norway when she called me like the end of July because it was the summer I'd been like in Europe and she was like hey you don't really know who I am but if you would like to I would love for you to serve and work with us on the Mississippi Human Trafficking Council and that was just such a God moment because I, I, you know, I asked the Lord to show me if that's what he wanted me to do. And after that, it's like every single thing is just falling into place. Like, yes, it's been hard work. Yes, it's a lot of figuring out, but the opportunities have presented themselves to be able to be taken. And that article is how we got connected. I came across the same article, uh, reached out through the Modern Miracle of LinkedIn. Uh, So I appreciate your response. 
you know, and, and thank you for walking us through that because I mean, there's just so many moving parts there and a lot to unpack from the dream to the, the, the story the next day to then the article and then your volunteer work. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for others to get involved? Wow. I would say, honestly, their service to me is the first step. I think a lot of people think they just want to jump into something and have like a leadership position or run something. But all of the, to me, the very important stuff that happens is the on the ground service. Um, I would say, you know, No Longer Bound is an organization I'm involved in at school. It's a Mississippi State student-led organization. I'm the vice president trying to run it this year. And one thing I've learned is leadership is just a very in-depth servitude. And so if you want to start helping in any capacity, look up local shelters, you know, look up anti-trafficking, victim resources. There are needs, you know, whether a lot of places that house victims They need help with finances. They need help to pay to run the house that the people are in. You know, like this, a lot of this stuff isn't government funded and it takes like daily average people to just, if everyone just gave like 5%, 10%, everything would be so different. So start small. I think sometimes we look at big national global problems and we're like, wow, there's no point even caring because we can't affect that. But when you look at your own community and your own people and you just give what you have, I believe a, that the Lord works through that. And it takes a village. So if everyone just started where they were, it would make a big impact. Well, and I love that. It's the concept of, you know, think global and act local. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you and I were speaking before the show about how human trafficking has become a big issue that I've been putting a lot of spotlight and in, in, in guests like yourself on there. You know, and I just want to touch on the Safe House Project, Andy Berger, Heather Fisher, Alina Donahue. These are all shows about human trafficking. And I've admitted a dozen times, at least on the show, that I had my head in the sand about this. Like I live in Fairfield County, Connecticut. There's no way it could happen here. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly where it happens. It happens everywhere. You can't Google human trafficking without seeing nine articles about something in New Jersey and Arizona and Seattle, Washington, and insert your town here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just for you to get involved at, at, you know, apologies, but for you at your young age, is just amazing. And just to raise awareness on campus, because that's where a lot of it starts. You see and read more and more stories about people not involved in the, with the university community going on campus and meeting people on there and grooming them and taking them. And that's just, a, a you know, unfortunately, that's how it starts. And to that point, what do you share with people about sex trafficking and human trafficking? And what should parents and young people understand about trafficking? Yeah, so it looks a lot different here um, in Mississippi and many states than people assume. There's this whole like white van theory um, in the U.S. that kids are just like nabbed off the street by some guy like trying to sell candy and like people are kidnapped. It's just a very, very, very small percentage. Um, One thing is that people are often trafficked out of their houses, you know, like their families, whether they want money for drugs or they don't have money to pay the bills, will traffic their own children, have men come in and out, pay them um, for sex acts or even like people put very, very young underage people to work for labor trafficking. And, you know, those individuals don't get a say and if they're paid, whether they're paid, where they're working, any of those things. And so if we're more aware of the factual signs going on, that's how it can be more helpful than if we're just like, you know, encaptured by the sphere of like, you know, being kidnapped or like, yes, don't walk alone at night, especially if you're a girl or you're younger, like, don't do that. Um, But that's not necessarily like where a vast majority of it happens. You know, I think teachers should be very aware of signs of trafficking because those kids are coming into your classroom every day. If something's off or they seem like a juvenile or something's wrong, like check into it, you know, Um, 
those are a lot of the places that we need to be looking out for things that it just goes right over a lot of people's heads because they're looking for the wrong signs. And to that point, I never thought about teachers being trained and looking for signs. There are other industries, though, that put specific training time into it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen an article recently on Delta Airlines, uh, mm -hmm. the Truck Driving Association. They're they're doing a big education push. And so it's a great point with, with teachers on that. How do you or will you measure your impact in combating trafficking? And what would success look like to you? So right now, through helping run No Longer Bound, something new we've decided to do this year is... Um, you know, I talked to the president and I was like, hey, I think this outreach and awareness, this is great. Advocating is great. But like the next awareness is action. And if you're not taking action, everyone just knows there's a problem. Like really not that much is happening. Um, and so we've selected a victim services nonprofit in Mississippi that we are currently for the first year ever trying to put together a university fundraiser for. Um, we are planning day and night trying to figure out all the moving parts and we want to raise at least fifteen hundred dollars this semester for our first semester to go towards that victim services nonprofit that houses you know they need groceries they need rent they need counseling services they need people to train them on jobs and like rehabilitate them in society so success in my view would be helping like that specific shelter um and that's just because like i said you know it starts here um, and being able to have an impact on Mississippi, even just like one shelter, five to 10 women, like that means a lot to me. I think we count people, oftentimes it's just numbers and statistics, but their lives. And if our organization of college kids could help real people's lives, that would be more than enough to be counted as success. And do you think you'll eventually use your skills and experience to create a nonprofit that you lead? Or would you prefer to work for an established nonprofit? You know, I've really been thinking about that a lot recently. You know, being in PR, I'm like, do I want to go and work PR for a nonprofit? Do I even want to one day have my own nonprofit? Do I even want to work in like a state or federal sector for like MBI? And I would love to help run a nonprofit just because I love how that works. I've especially just like working with No Longer Bound and all the moving parts and seeing like the outreach and the finances. And I feel like I'm being very well equipped right now here at State for that. I would love to work for one and even maybe start my own one day if needed. How have you grown as a result of your work to raise awareness about human trafficking and also working with others like you who are committed to helping them? I think that I've had much joy in finding people who are also willing to work for the same mission. You know, with No Longer Bound the last couple of years, we've only had 15 members or so, maybe four people coming to meetings. Last year was my first year on the club. We have done a huge push public relations wise, and we already have 70 members within our first semester right now, which has warmed my heart. I mean, we were tabling out on the drill field of the university for four hours in the sun and just having people come up and ask questions and say like they want to be involved was enough to encourage us to keep going and to keep working hard. I mean, the first girl who walked up to our table, she was a transfer student from Lebanon. This was her first semester in the States. And she was like, I've been following you all on Instagram for a while. And like, I just want to be involved. And she was like, I'm not quite fully registered as a student here yet. She's like, that process is still happening the next week. But, like, I want to come to the meetings and like, I want to help. And I just remember being so taken aback that someone from so far away would come here and want to like help us, you know, on this mission. And I've learned, like I said, people think leadership, being in a leadership position is just like, oh, well, you know, I need to like run stuff. People need to respect me. I need to have authority. But that's not how that works. You know, if you 
people under under you in the general body are looking to you to see a how much you care about it what you're willing to do you know like serving them and helping them in any way helps the organization as a whole like whole i think leadership is just a glorified servitude position honestly and if everyone were to realize that i think even the country would run a lot better i hope washington heard you say that <laughs> if not well i'll send them a, a clip of this there we go <laughs> so faith is obviously something that's very important to you what are your religious or spiritual beliefs and the role they play in your life so i am a christian as in i believe jesus christ died for our sins i believe in the one god you know the lord of all and i think that growing up in the south that's honestly been hard because it's something at first that's just like ingrained in your head that you don't like you believe it but like everyone else kind of does too um in it to a degree but coming to college has just been like full surrender you know um it went from being like yeah like i believe in god i follow moralism i'm a somewhat good person you know i've never killed anyone um to being like okay wow like there is a god who created the skies and the heavens and the earth and like us as humans as a reflection of him and like that is also why i trafficking is such a huge atrocity because humans are created in the image and the reflection of the lord and God doesn't say love your enemies also just because like they're people or to make you a better person. Because even though when other people aren't necessarily being like the best version versions of themselves, they're still a reflection of the Lord. And so human life should be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. And we should do everything we can to defend that human life. And so just getting to know the Lord more and drawing closer to him and being in full surrender with him has just impacted even more why I care so much about fighting trafficking. Great segue into the close. We have just a few minutes left, and I'm going to have you take us to the end of our conversation with what gives you hope about the future, even as you grapple with such a massive and ugly industry as sex and human trafficking. What honestly gives me hope is no human thing. Um, I believe, you know, my beliefs are obviously very important to me. I believe God is the same God he was, you know, 2,000 years ago, a million years ago, before the beginning of the earth. And I believe that he doesn't start a good work that he does not finish. And I believe there are many people walking and abiding him and fighting the good fight because they love the Lord and they're following what he wants them to do. And my hope is not in man because man will fail us every time. You know, I fail all the time. And so just relying in him in the days, it doesn't make sense. And just knowing the Lord is sovereign. That is what gives me hope. Baby Rayborn, you give folks like me hope for the future. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. We'll let you get back to your studies. And, and thanks to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure, and then X, formerly known as Twitter, I'm not sure how long we have to keep saying that, at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.